In a world full of boring stories, bad videos, and marketing misinformation, one very tall man with a weird last name will use his microphone. This thing on. Use his video marketing knowledge. It's the red button, right? And use his friends. Please be on the show. To change that. You are listening to The Garlic Marketing Show with Ian. What? No, that's how you pronounce it. Well, if you say so, your host, Ian Garlic. Welcome to the Garlic Marketing Show. I've got a very, very special guest today. I always say that. I say it a lot because I get a lot of great guests, but today's guest took 1-800-GOT-JUNK from $2 million to $106 million in revenue in, in what was it, six years, I believe? Six um, years, yeah. Six years. And, uh, you know, it written some amazing books, books I love that are actionable. That are for, One thing I love about the books, and we'll talk about that too, is that they're from someone who actually did it. So they're not theory books. They're not research books. They're someone did these things. Um, but before I introduce and get going with Cameron Harold, let's get a little message from our sponsor, Story Cruise. You know, whether if you're looking to grow a company $100 million or become an authority in our space, online video is one of the most powerful tools out there. StoryCruise.com can help you create a video strategy, find trained local videographers, editors, and find video marketers in your field, in your town. Go to StoryCruise.com and learn to create the perfect customer story, an about us video that rocks, and the third most video important video on your website. Wherever you want an online video, storycruise.com for all your needs. Awesome. Back to our guest, Cameron Harold. Thank you so much for being on the show. Love your stuff. It's awesome. I'm super excited to talk to you. Thank you. I, I'm actually going to go check out Story Cruise when we're done as well. It sounds uh, awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, we've got a lot going on there. Um, so, let's talk about it. You've written a bunch of books, but tell me, you know, your history is out there. You, you know, you became a entrepreneur by 21 you had 14 employees by 35 you had 200 million dollar companies you took 1-800 got jump from 2 million to 106 million but and we can go into that all of it and at the end we're going to talk about leveraging pr but what do you think was if you were i mean i mean that's a lot of tools but what's the one characteristic that really drove you through all of that success one character, that's a really interesting question. Um, <clears throat> I think it was that I kind of, well, it's interesting. There's a fly. I don't know if you can see this. There's a fly trying to get out the window. Uh, <laughs> so I've always seen entrepreneurs like flies trying to get out a window. And they're going to try harder and try harder and try harder. And I remember watching them as a little kid going, but there's a door. It's right here. It's open. If you just turn and go out the door, you're free. And I'd watch them and then they were dead the next day on the window ledge. And I think the one characteristic for me has always been, <clears throat> I look for those shortcuts. I look for the cheat sheets. I look for that path of least resistance. And then I've always believed that momentum creates momentum. So for me, it's, it's the minimum viable everything, not minimum viable product. It's minimum viable everything. Because the, the faster I just get stuff out the door, that momentum creates more momentum. Yeah. I, you know, it's fine. We have a t-shirt. I'm not wearing it today, but it's version done is better than version none. And I I think that's absolutely critical. I see that as 
one of the big mistakes and, uh, you know, working with a lot of companies over the years, I think that's a big one. And the other one too is vision. Um, You know, and I think your book, Vivid Vision is fantastic. And I think vision, I'd like to talk about why you feel vision is important to someone's marketing. Is it important to their marketing? And why do you feel people are scared of making their vision? Because it seems obvious, but I don't see a lot of people do it. I ask people all the time, 10 years of asking people, no one's ever produced a vivid vision document. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, that's, I guess about 12 years ago, I started on this bit of a manic rampage of trying to get companies to understand that that one sentence vision statement was never enough to completely align all of your employees. see the rest of the picture most entrepreneurs or most ceos have got a vision in their mind of what their company looks like acts like and feels like three years out but they don't share it with anyone and then they wonder why they're always trying to herd cats why they're always trying to you know align people why they're always trying to hold people accountable well it's mostly because no one can see what they can see and if they could get everyone to see what the entrepreneur could see they would all drive in that same direction so the vivid vision became a four or five page written document describing your company in all aspects, three years in the future. And that four or five page document describes not how you're going to do it, but what the company looks like December 31st, three years out. So most people I think are afraid to do it because they're either afraid of how they're going to do it. And instead they think they have to be the one to figure out how, but it's like the homeowner who's building a house I don't know how to do electrical. I don't know how to do plumbing. I don't know how to do drywall. I don't know how to build walls and put in the foundation. I'm not worried about the how. I'm worried about describing what my home looks like so the contractor can find people that know how to make my vision come true. So I think most people are afraid to describe it because they're thinking about how instead of thinking about who. That's fantastic. And you know, the, the book is called Vivid Vision. We'll put the link in the show notes. I think it's an important book for everyone. And, you know, if you're working with any marketer, I, I think seeing the vision is fantastic. But it's also something you use to sell to your clients too, right? I, I went to COOlliance.com um, and boom, right there on the homepage, your Vivid Vision. How is that, how is that your tool in marketing? How do you use that in marketing? It's, it's been a huge tool. In fact, I just launched the 2022 Vivid Vision that I just put onto the homepage this week to replace the old 2019 Vivid Vision that I wrote three years ago. So we're now on the next three-year push to grow this you know, network, the world's largest um, network of, of second commands. And now my suppliers can see what I'm building. My marketers can see what I'm building. My social media team, my um, operations people, everyone can see, my members can see it potential members can see it. My accountant understands what we're building. You know, everyone can see what I can see. And all of a sudden they start making introductions. You know, I met someone the other day, Jason Campbell at a a Genius Network event with Joe Polish. And Jason introduced me to one of his friends who was a perfect member of the CO Alliance. And the reason he knew that was he'd read the Vivid Vision. So he introduced his friend, his friend read the Vivid Vision. He joined and that's now paid for itself. Have you seen anyone implement the vivid vision that it didn't work and why? Not really. Um, most, I mean, if it doesn't work, it's because you don't execute on it. You don't focus on it. You know, it's like, it'd be like saying, have you ever seen a homeowner design a dream home that they couldn't build? Well, yeah. Cause they built one that was outside of the money they had, or they built one that was like, didn't have the proper zoning or, 
So you can't dream too big. You know, if you've never built a company before, don't describe a vivid vision for a hundred million dollar business at your first go round. It's probably not going to happen. Um, you know, so I think there might be some people who are, but I don't work with that group. You know, my, my audience is really the 10 employee to thousand employee companies. So they already have a proof of concept. I think if it doesn't work, it's probably people that are trying to swing at something they have no business swinging at. And, and that's interesting to me because I, you know, I, I agree with you and I, I've been thinking about that a lot because you see this in the whole entrepreneur world and, and you see everyone saying, just dream bigger, dream bigger, dream bigger. But that, does that always serve you? No, it doesn't always serve you. And most, a lot of entrepreneurs should go back and get a job. They're never meant to be an entrepreneur in the first place. And I completely disagree that people should drop out and start their own company. If you're not entrepreneurial, the world only needs 3% of the population to be entrepreneurs. We need 97% of the people to have jobs. Um, I think dreaming big, is kind of like an athlete. If you're 13 years old, don't think that you're going to be in the Olympics when you're 16. You know, maybe set a goal to be in your state championships or your, you know, national championships before you go for like the worlds. That's great advice. That um, is and, then, and then maybe, maybe kind of think about it logically to go, where would I, you know, think about some of the hows to start framing it and bringing it back into reality. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I, I've, you know, and I've even become a victim of it where, you know, early on, I dreamed too big for a company and it, it made me make the wrong small decisions. And, and I think that's critical to a company. But also one other things I love about um, Double Double, which, you know, and you I obviously have done this and you've grown businesses and grown businesses, um, is the need for an operations person, uh, someone that's your operations person. Uh, you know, when you're, you, a lot of these, there's a lot of seven-figure companies, eight-figure companies, especially now with e-commerce and people growing, even, you know, a 10-figure company and still really don't have a true operations person. How do you go about when you're a smaller company finding that person that can help execute your vivid vision when you don't have necessarily the budget to do it? Well, and, and you actually asked the right question. Most people ask, how do we find the right COO? That's not the right question. The right question is, how do we find the right operations person? Because it can be an operations person, it can be a director of operations, it can be an operations manager, it could be a VP of operations, or it could be a COO. But the bigger your title you give someone equates to how much pay they want and what kind of responsibility they think we have. So be very careful with giving out overinflated titles too early. The first thing you need to do when you're hiring an operations person is if you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. So hire an EA before you hire an operations person. You'll probably free up 50% of what's on your plate or 30% of what's on your plate to allow you to get back and focus on the critical few things to really scale your business. And then you can afford to hire an operations person. So that would be step one. Step two is look to get anything off your plate that's not your highest ROI. You know, as an entrepreneur, we only have three inputs. We have people, we have time, and we have money. So what is the highest return on those three investments you're making into your business? If you're the only person, what's the highest ROI on you for eight hours a day? Or what's the highest ROI on your one hour today or one hour this afternoon? And what's the highest ROI on the dollars you're spending? Most entrepreneurs don't think about that. They get distracted by the big shiny object instead of thinking what's the leverage they're going to get off of it. And then I try to get momentum. So momentum creates momentum. 
And if that momentum is throwing off gross margin, it allows you to start hiring people and using that gross margin to get the minimum wage jobs off your plate. That's great advice. And then lastly, I would say is, is stop doing some stuff. You know, we often try to automate or outsource or delegate things that we don't even really need to continue doing in the first place. Like why, why can't we just stop it? That's interesting. How do you decide what to stop? Take a look at your ROI. Um, take a look at whether it really needs to be done in the first place. You know, if you're doing stuff that you have a very low ROI for, just cut it. You know, it's your company. Nobody says you have to do these things. So now, you know, obviously, you know, I want to talk about the PR because you took and leveraged PR to get 5,200 stories for one business before there was Facebook. And I want to talk about that. But, you know, now you've seen you were in 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which I love that story, which you talk about a lot um, throughout all your writing, but also your other businesses. And now with consulting, you've, you know, you're working with big, huge companies and you've got the CEO Alliance. What do you see as the big mistakes that businesses are making in marketing right now? Because I feel like you have to test and there's a lot of things to try, but I would know what are the mistakes you see them doing in marketing? I think the big mistakes that companies are doing is they're trying to market a product or a service that sucks. (laughs) They should fix the underlying core product or service they have so that it's actually a good product or a good service that people want and will pay money for. But if you have a bunch of great marketing and advertising selling a product that sucks, you're just going to spin off more negative word word of mouth. Like you're just going to go bankrupt faster. So I think most companies don't fix their underlying core product or nor do they go out and look at the market to see if the market really wants what they're trying to build. That's interesting. And I mean, that's simple. It's simple, right? Somebody the other day, I was talking to someone the other day and I said, what happened with your business? Why wasn't it successful? And he goes, we spent millions of dollars trying to market it only to find out no one really wanted what we were selling. I'm like, why the (laughs) fuck did you start selling it in the first place? (laughs) Isn't that, it's funny because there's a lot of people doing that. There's a lot of people. I, I, I've actually talked to someone that was starting their business. So like, I've got all my branding done. I've got all this done. I've got all this done. I'm like, have you sold anything yet? No. I'm like, <laughs> you don't need to have anything to go out and sell something and test out if someone wants it. Right. That's, yeah. So, you know, when it comes to improving your product and improving your marketing in tandem, what were some of the techniques that you all used? listening to the customer and finding out what they're excited about and why they bought you and then turning your marketing and your messaging toward that is number one. Number two though, is really trying to find out exactly who your target buyer really is, not necessarily who's buying you now. Mm. So as an example, this is a really interesting one for marketers. When I first joined 1-800-GOT-JUNK, they had a guy who was running marketing with no marketing experience. And he said that our number one postal code or zip code in Vancouver happened to be where our office was. And he said that we should profile those people who lived in that zip code and then market to all those same demographics in every city that we were in, market to all the same psychodemographic people. I said, possibly. But I said, my theory is the reason that zip code is our busiest is people see our trucks every day driving to and from the office. We park trucks in that area all the time. So I checked with our 12 franchisees and sure enough, 
the number one zip code in all 12 markets was where the house or the office was for the franchisee. <laughs> so it wasn't that all of the right psychodemographic people happened to be living where our offices was. It was that people saw our trucks. So we reframed all of our marketing and we found out where the right demographic people would be. We started putting our trucks there. We started marketing to them in that zip code. And all of a sudden, within six weeks, those zip codes became our busiest. That's genius. Well, it just kind of is common sense, right? Where are your, where are your buyers? Like when you go duck hunting, if you want to shoot a certain kind of duck, you go to where those ducks go. You don't hide in the bushes and hope they come by. Like you got to, <laughs> where do those ducks go, right? So where are my customers going to be? So for me, as an example, with my COO Alliance, I launched something called the Second in Command podcast. So I only interview the COOs or the Second in Commands for companies I pushed that out targeted on LinkedIn and on Facebook to COOs and to entrepreneurs running companies 10 million or greater. That's my demographic. Now, sure, I have other people hear it and see it, but they're not necessarily the ones I'm targeting, right? My, I know who my target client is. I know where they hang out. Now, why am I not on Instagram and, and Snapchat? Because my prospects aren't on Instagram and Snapchat. <laughs> it's, it's so funny you say that because it's like I was in a, you know, we... I built a video agency and now I coach other video agencies and consults with them and I'm in a group and they're like, well, you know, Gary V says that we need to be using TikTok." And I'm like, well, and they're like, what's the TikTok strategy? I'm like, well, are your clients or your clients clients on TikTok?" They're like, no, I'm like, their, their strategy is not to be there. <laughs> and that's, it's, that's straightforward. But I still think, you know, understanding where your clients are is important, but you made us an important leap with the truck thing. And I think, I feel like when I, I heard you say that, that's like one of your shortcuts kind of, it's like, it, it, it seems obvious when you say it now, but I don't think back then it would have been as obvious. So how do you go about finding those shortcuts in and identifying them? Which shortcut? Where to park trucks or? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, that to me was a shortcut, right? Because you were going to go do all this demographic research on that person and go test it out. And you're like, well, the shortcut is the, you know, the trucks where the trucks were. And you saw that. But it seems like you, you have this vision for shortcuts, like you've mentioned. Yeah, I just I just see the patterns. I, so my attention deficit is very, very high. I have 17 of the 18 signs of attention deficit disorder, which is which is actually a superpower for an entrepreneur because my, dis, my, my attention is so dispersed, I see everything. And I notice the patterns. So as I'm kind of running through my day, I pick up everything around me. So I just happen to see those patterns. So I happen to notice things and they stick with me, but I don't get so preoccupied with them until I, I need to. Interesting. So the, the school system and the medical community think I'm a disaster. I'm ADD and I'm bipolar and I'm on the spectrum for, for dyscalculia, which is a, a dyslexic disorder. So they think I should be medicated and, you know, but that's, that would be awful for me. Yeah, it would be. I've just learned how to, I've learned how to leverage my disorders. It's so funny you say that. Cause I was, I was writing something today about the other day about that and how the disorders for a lot of people can be leveraged and are actually tools and it just depends on which direction you go. And if you, I mean, like, uh, you know, the stat and I'm not, I, the stat from Malcolm Gladwell, where it's like 50% of CEOs are dyslexic. Um, I think it's an important thing. When, when did you realize that? And how did you realize that you were leveraging that? Well, I knew at a very young age that I was stupid 
according to the school system. I was told to pay attention and sit still, try to memorize stuff. And as hard as I studied, I always got 62%. I always realized it was kind of pointless to learn all this stupid stuff. I wanted to learn about other things, so I just studied those on my own. So I knew at a pretty young age that it was pointless. Um, And then I also realized that I tended to do really well at things that weren't in the system. Like I was making all this money selling stuff all the time. None of my friends were. I was envious that they were having more fun than I maybe was having as a kid, but I I knew in my head I was smart. I knew in my head I was successful, but where I was being told every day by the teachers that I was stupid or a C, you know, a C minus student, I was starving for praise and attention. And I started to get that from doing speaking events as a kid. I would do public speaking contests or be in plays or sell stuff to get recognized, to get praise for doing well. So I got my, my praise and my dopamine rush in spite of the fact that I felt like I was systematically beat up for 16 years going from, you know, kindergarten through university. That's yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, yeah, I, that's a whole nother podcast, <laughs> um, but you know, and you, you mentioned your speaking and I saw there, you know, and that a lot of people mentioned that you're one of the best speakers they've ever seen. Um, how, how important has been speaking been to your business and how have you developed that side of your business? I've always been a speaker. I mean, I told someone the other day, they said, I said, they had to do a speaking event. How should they speak? And I said, well, how old were you when you started speaking? He goes, one. I said, you're 44, right? He goes, yeah. I said, you've been speaking for 43 years. He goes, okay. So so just stand on stage and talk how you normally talk. And if you talk how you normally talk, your voice and your tone and your inflection resonates with people. You have a natural energy and you'll have a natural connection. And if you just tell stories about what you've learned and what you've done, where you failed and where you succeeded, try to help people they'll all learn and they'll benefit from it. But if you pontificate at them and you're trying to teach them and you're reading from slides, you'll fail. So for me, I've always just spoken to share and to help people. I've fed off that energy and given that energy back. I mean, I've also always seen the speaking audience as potential customers. So I just talk about what I've done and let them know where they can get some of that stuff so they can benefit from it on their own. And that just becomes my funnel. Good enough. Easy enough. Um, and speaking of getting in front of your customers, let's talk a little bit about your PR tips. You know, you have a book, obviously free PR bill on Amazon and don't forget all these links, links says podcast, CO Alliance. They'll all be in the show notes. If you're listening to our iPad, just click on the image. You'll go over and be able to get all the links. Uh, but Cameron, tell me about your, how you leverage PR, especially before social media. Sure. Well, one of the things we learned about free PR In fact, the first journalist who ever wrote about me is a guy named Tom Hewlett, wrote about me in 1986, and he just added me last week on LinkedIn, and I just flipped when I saw his name. I sent him a note. I'm like, whoa, that's so crazy. (laughs) Um, One of the things I learned about journalists years ago was every single morning, every journalist wakes up and thinks, what the heck am I going to write about today? And they all need a story idea. They need something to write about. So you're not asking them to write about you. You're doing them a favor in helping them come up with a story idea for something that they need to come up with today anyway. 
So you're handing them a story and helping them craft something for their audience. So that was the first thing. The second thing was to remember that every news outlet is different based on the audience or the demographic that reads or listens to or watches their media outlet. So you have to kind of position your story a little bit differently for that target audience. You know, if I'm talking to, to your audience, what I understand is most of them are smaller or newer entrepreneurs, maybe one to 20 employees is, is the target. We might have some corporate, but that's the zone. But if I'm talking to a, a real estate audience of, of single person companies, I have to position my content differently or for a corporate audience very differently. You know, when I'm being re- interviewed by Forbes magazine, I come up. I communicate with different sound bites than I would for entrepreneur magazine or Inc magazine. Interesting. And how do you plan those? Do you plan those sound bites out or how yeah, do I try you... to think about strategically where am I going with my sales and my marketing and how can I have PR as part of that kind of three-sided you know, wedge that I'm trying to drive open a market? How do I leverage that? And, 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 and if I'm doing it to, to help, an audience or to serve an audience or educate an audience, but it always ties in with my sales and marketing that I'm doing as well. And at what point would you start doing, like if you were starting a company today, what point would you start doing PR immediately? I guess it depends on what you're selling and who you're selling to. Um, You know, if you're going to conferences and going to trade shows, great opportunity to have the trade media cover you. Um, If you've got a small local presence, good opportunity to get some of the small local press to cover you. But I guess it depends on, on your product or your service. I guess when you're like a, you know, a 10, 20 person company, for sure, PR should be part of your marketing strategy. Right. Um, and how did you, how did you go about doing that? I mean, I know you tell him about the company, but how did you go out back with that outreach? Was it just a simple outreach? Were you using help a reporter out or those tools? It's funny, funny you mentioned Haro, help a reporter. Peter Shankman, the founder of Haro, wrote the foreword for our book, Free PR. Um, I've known Peter for years. So, no, we picked up the phone. Um, well, everyone else was emailing. And I give, I give all the step-by-step directions on how to land publicity in the book, Free PR. So if they buy the hard copy, they'll be scribbling notes throughout it. Um, we, we would pick up the phone and phone the journalists. Like, you think about today, like how many times has your phone rang? twice <laughs> but you've probably gotten 50 emails already so yeah. the reality is you've got a 50 50 shot of getting through to somebody on their phone and you have a one in 50 shot of getting through to them over email so what i do is i phone them and i say hey do you have two minutes i think i have a good story for you they usually say yes if they say no then i say well can i call you tomorrow or friday and they're pretty much going to say yes to a phone call because two minutes to learn about a story they might want to write about is better than having to read through another hundred email pitches. That's such a great piece of advice. And, and it's funny how scared people are to pick up the phone these days and how powerful, like the thing that people are scared. I feel like in marketing, the thing that people are scared to do, it's probably the thing that you should be doing the most. Well, of. It's probably because marketers should not be doing PR. Salespeople should be doing PR, right? Hire someone who likes to cold call can handle rejection is good at picking up the phone, can, you know, conveying energy, um, telling a story, asking questions and listening. You hire a salesperson to sell your stories. A marketing person, if they get a rejection, runs away. A salesperson's like, wow, I know they answered the phone. I'll call them on Thursday when they're not as busy. That's great. That's such a ninja tip. So speaking of ninja tips, we, we spoke about PR. I mean, you've given such amazing advice. 
But I still think the whole CEO, like the operations COO person, um, is is a difficult, difficult thing for people to do. Um, you know, and I think the vision is important. I was read double double. Do you have any last minute tips on picking out that person and training that person in your company? Yeah, it's really looking for someone that you implicitly trust, someone that you would give your passwords to and, you know, keys to your bank account on day one. Um, so really, really making sure you interview thoroughly, do the, the threat of reference checks, reference checks, you really know everything about them. Secondly is hire someone who's really, really good at the stuff you hate and who doesn't want to do the stuff that you love so that you can truly kind of divide and conquer and have a bit of a true yin and yang, um, you know, approach with the two of you. Beautiful. That's great advice. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you know, check out uh, Vivid Vision. We talked about, we talked about free PR. We talked about Double Double. We talked about com and your second in command podcast. Um, amazing resources and from someone who's really done it, which I love. Thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Video. You know, it'll make you an authority you know it will get you more leads, better leads that close faster and spend more with you. And video stories will help you be remembered and connect with those perfect clients. The problem is, where do you start? Storycruise.com is the place to go. It's like a film crew with an S. What's your strategy? Do you do it yourself? Do you hire a videographer, an agency? Do you need an editor? How do you know if they really know your business and how to make videos for business that work? The answer to all of this and more can be found at storycruise.com. It is the place to find the latest video marketing strategies, the best gear for your business, as well as videographers, editors, and agencies near you that are trained in video storytelling for business. Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get special insider info for listeners of the Garlic Marketing Show, including special access to several of my courses, including my case story course. Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get a whole bunch of special offers just for listeners of the Garlic Marketing Show. Whether you're looking for a videographer or to do it yourself, Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get started today. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow Ian Garlic on Facebook. <laughs>